0: As Mike shared, a a family matter took me out of town unexpectedly, and while I was away, a number of you reached out to just let you know that you were praying for us, and I just want to express how grateful Aaron and I are for your prayers. That is the single best thing you can do for us, and we're thankful for that. And just to recognize what a gift it is to have so many others step in in my absence and serve so well, whether it's Nick and Mike crushing the preaching and the service leader and the elders stepping in during the members' meeting. You know, many churches would be happy just to have one man who's able to handle the word well, and we've got a slew of men who can handle it well, and I probably should feel guilty for that, but I don't. I'm just genuinely grateful. Members of UBC, God has been very kind to us and those who's put around us and to lead us, and that's not been lost on me this past week. I pray that it has not been lost upon you. Well, let's pray as we go to God's word. God, we do pray. Recognizing you are God of tremendous grace. And you have loved us wonderfully and beautifully and beyond measure in Christ. And may he now be glorified through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So no taxation without representation. Join or die. Don't tread on me. Those are but a few of the famous rallying cries of the American Revolution, but perhaps the most memorable of all those cries came from a man by the name of Patrick Henry, a Scottish lawyer, a gifted rhetorician who is known as the Cicero of Virginia. And in 1775, he actually ascended the steps of a a local parish church there in Richmond, Virginia. He placed his hands on the pulpit, and he launched into one of the most fiery speeches of the Revolution— Now, he began, measured, even softly, but as his speech came to a close, his voice rose into this furious crescendo, and he concluded with that immortal line, I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death, and that became really the rallying cry of the revolution, and actually not just our revolution. So uh, if any of you can remember back to Tiananmen Square, it was actually that line that many of the protesters and students were chanting in Chinese there in Tiananmen Square. It's safe to say, we as Americans, I know Chinese, you know what I mean, there's different languages, Mandarin, whatever, you got it. Point being, they used in their own language, but we as Americans, that is an expression of how much we love our freedom. To, to speak of monarchs and to speak of kings, that was, well, those were like curse words during the revolution. But the question I want us to be thinking about is all those notions we have of freedom, of individuality, of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, those things that are we cherish so in the political realm, how do we think about those things in the spiritual realm? Are we masters of our own fate and captains of our own soul, or are we beholden to a higher power? Well, friends, it's questions like this that actually bring us back to the book of 2 Samuel. We'll be in chapters 7 through 10. That's right. I know I was supposed to do chapter 7 last week. I was going to do that alone, but we're bringing it all together here, chapters 7 to 10, which you can find if you're using one of the red Bibles in the seat back before you. You can find on page 259, page 259. You can go ahead and... And turn there now. And if you're visiting with us, second Samuel really just records the story of how the young nation of, of Israel became, and really was transformed from just this sleepy tribal community into this great dynasty. And her first king was Saul, but as we've seen, though he looked the part, he couldn't play the part. So God had to what? He had to find a man after his own heart. And that was the shepherd boy David. And after many twists and turns, David has now finally come into power. He captured Jerusalem, as we saw last or two weeks ago. He defeats the Philistines. He brings the ark of God to rest in the new capital city. And at that moment, at the end of chapter six, David's star has never really burned brighter. Which brings us to chapters 7 to 10. And part of what we're going to see is that all those notions we cherish of autonomy and individual freedoms, all those things cherished to us in the personal realm and the political realm, it turns out, you know, in the spiritual realm, well, that operates under a different set of principles and priorities. Spiritually speaking, we're going to see it turns out we actually all live under a monarchy. Like it or not, everyone in this room is subject to a king, and we all live as citizens of that kingdom. What is that kingdom like? Who is this king? What is he exactly like? What happens if we rebel against his rule? Who prospers under his rule? Those are questions that chapters 7 to 10 deal with. And so in chapter 7, we're going to discover the promise of the kingdom. And then in chapter 8 and in chapter 10... We're going to see the pattern of the kingdom. And then in chapter 9, we're going to see the people of the kingdom. So if you're taking notes there, are your three points. There's the promise of the kingdom, chapter 7. There's the pattern of the kingdom, chapter 8, chapter 10. And then there's the people of the kingdom in chapter 9. Or if you just prefer, promise, pattern, people. And just so you know, within each of those points, there's going to be a corresponding lesson. So have your ears tuned and be listening for that. So first, the promise of the kingdom. The promise of the kingdom. We pick up chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all of these words, in accordance with all of this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Well, friends, here we've come to perhaps one of the most important and significant chapters in all of the Bible, certainly all of the Old Testament. So if you want to think of the Old Testament as a mountain range, chapter 7, that's like we just summited Everest there. This is the peak of all mountains. And we know this in part because this is the longest monologue of the Lord since way back in the days of Moses. Now, the scene opens, notice, with David, and he's where? He's in his sweet pad, right? He's got the smell of cedar planks waffling in the air. And what does he notice? Well, the ark of God is in what? A dusty tent. David is truly living like a king. Whereas the ark and the tent, weathered and worn by decades now of wilderness wanderings, it looks more like a homeless encampment. So perhaps at the side of this, David feels some tinge of guilt. We're not sure. Maybe he's thinking, you know what, I I could move into a tent. Or maybe better, I could build the Lord a house. I could create some digs for him as sweet as mine. Nathan seems to agree with whatever is on David's mind. Only the Lord immediately comes to David, rather to Nathan, rather, that very night. And he tells Nathan that he's got to share this word with David, verse 5. And just notice how the Lord is putting this to David. Would you, David, right, would you build me, the Lord, a house to dwell in? All right, he's leaning into David a little there. And then God is basically going to say in verse 6, Hey, you know what? I've never lived in a house before. And have I ever complained about it? Have I ever seemed upset or bothered by that? No, God's not sitting there. You know, with sort of his hands on his hips, kind of anxiously tapping his foot, wondering, when are my people going to figure out that I'd really love a home? And, oh man, David's ready to give it to me now. That's not how God is behaving here. God doesn't need an upgrade. He doesn't need a house. And he certainly wasn't lobbying for a house. You see, Israel's God is not tied to a particular place In The gods of Egypt, right? They were tied, what, to the Nile. The gods of the Canaanites, often tied to mountaintops. But the Lord isn't tied to a place. No, the Lord is what? He's tied to his people. That's whom he's tied to. And God basically says, hey, David, you can have your palace. Because I am perfectly perfectly happy dwelling with and dwelling among my people. It's one of the beautiful things we see about God. He delights to dwell with his people. If his people are on the move, guess what? He's on the move with them. If they're in tents, he's in a tent. If they're dusty and poor and dirty and ragged, well, he joins in right with them. He's not afraid to enter into the very condition of his people. I wonder if that already begins to remind you of someone else. Someone who came to tabernacle among his people. Someone who condescended to clothe himself in the very garb of his people. Someone who knew hunger and cold and weariness like us. Someone who walked with his people and talked with them and ate with them and slept alongside them and would one day die for them. You know, I think we can think perhaps a lot like David here. We can think that God is someone who needs us, right? He needs my service. He needs my sacrifices. He needs my money or my tithes and offerings, my time and talents and treasure. The Lord needs that for me. But God's saying to David, David, no, no, time out. You've got it all backward. You've got it all upside down. Remember, I, he says, was the one who took you from the pasture and put you into that palace. I'm the one who has made you, so to speak, 34-0 in the ring, right? The undisputed heavyweight champion of the ancient Near East at this point in verse 9. Perhaps David needed to hear Paul's sermon at the Areopagus. Acts 17. Paul preached, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything you see God's not entering into some quid pro quo with his people right you build me a house David and then I'll be sure to not only maintain your house but even enlarge your house this isn't an I'll scratch my back and you scratch mine kind of arrangement so here's the lesson I want us to see in this promise of a kingdom the lesson I think God is seeking to teach David and therefore teach us as well and it's this Friends, God doesn't need us. We need him. God doesn't need us. We rather need him. Right? God's not some charity case that we take up in order to feel better about ourselves. He's not some panhandler on the side of the road begging for any loose change we just might throw his way. No, he needs absolutely nothing from us, and we rather are the ones that need everything from him. So God's basically saying, No, David, you are not going to build me a house. And here's where God really flips the script, and he does what no one expects. God says, David, you are not going to build me a house. Instead, I'm going to build you a house, as in a dynasty. He says David is what? He's going to have a a great reputation, as in a great name, verse 9. And then what also is he going to have? There's going to be lots of real estate for Israel and land for the people. And there's also to be rest, as in peace from his enemies, verse 11. And so there is reputation, there's real estate, there's rest. And then lastly, there is this magnificent rain that we read in chapter 12. I'm sorry, in uh, verse 12, the second half. God says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Notice David's not to do it. It's one of his descendants. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And it goes on, right? What a promise. What a promise the Lord has given David. David entered into this whole moment, right? Assuming he was going to come and do a favor for God, and instead God is the one who's announcing he's gonna change David's life eternally. Now that word for offspring in verse 12 is elsewhere just translated seed, which remind us what? It reminds us of the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3. It reminds us of the seed that's promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, and now here the seed promised to David. And the mention of place and land also harkens back to the promises God made to Abraham and to his people. And of course, these verses speak most directly and immediately to David's own offspring, particularly Solomon, who will build the temple. But, you know, they point as well to someone even greater. Because if you know the story, what happens? Solomon becomes unfaithful. And the kingdom is divided between the northern tribes and the southern tribes, and it's later both are going to be carried off into exile and there's going to be a partial return from exile but it's just a shadow of the glory that once was and by the time we get to the new testament what do we have we have an imposter on the throne and we have an oppressed people and it appears this promise to david is empty and it's broken and the lord hasn't fulfilled it but that's where these verses serve as a kind of A structural span, this vital structural span, a kind of suspension bridge, if you will, that links the promised seed of Genesis 3 through the seed of Abraham to the seed of David's greater son, Jesus. All linked together in these promises in 2 Samuel 7. For in whom do we find the perfect expression of reputation, real estate, rest, and reign, and we find that in Jesus, don't we? I mean, he's the one who has a reputation that is truly great among the nations. I know Taylor Swift thinks she has a big reputation. I know with Travis Kelsey, she really thinks she has a big reputation. But let's be clear, God is the one who has the reputation among the nations. And every day it grows with stories like the conversion of Himani, amen? He's the one who settled his people. He's the one who's given him real estate, not just in Canaan, but whose kingdoms now expand across the globe. And he is the one who has what? He's provided rest. Ultimately, through his death on the cross, giving rest to our souls and promising us eternal rest with him, Hebrews 4. And he is, of course, this Jesus, the one who continues to reign in the heavens now at the right hand of God and here on earth through the church. Why does all this matter? Because I want you to see that God has indeed made good on these promises in 2 Samuel 7. Every promise of God finds we're seeing here, it's yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Which means if we ourselves are in Christ, we participate in these same promises with Christ. So that this promise here is not just a promise of succession for David... But for us, this is what? This is a promise of salvation that is held out to all of us through the person of Christ. And just as the covenant to David's successor is based on these unconditional promises of God, so our own salvation is based not on our works, not on our service, not on what we bring to the table or how well we obey, but that too is based on the unconditional promises of God. Inasmuch as as David could do nothing to forfeit these promises. And we're about to see how bad it gets for David next week. He'll, He'll try, if you will. But there is nothing he can do that will forfeit this promise in his life. And so, my Christian friend, there is nothing you can do to forfeit these promises in your own life. Now, after such extraordinary promises that David is offered What might we expect David to do? We might expect David to blush and say, oh, geez, God, I mean, like, you really shouldn't have. You've really outdone yourself with this one. This is all just, you know, too much for me. I don't deserve this. You know, I'd I'd understand if perhaps you decide to change your mind, you know, maybe play in a little false humility. Like, we, we might expect that. I think you, I know what that's like. Or he could say, you know, Wow, God, like this is this is pretty big. And you know, if if I'm gonna really try to take this to heart, I might need a larger palace, maybe a few more advisors, maybe a more grand army or some more money in the treasury. You know, something like that would really help me to believe that you're going to make good on all these promises. There might be a kind of temptation to test God. And we might well respond in one of these ways. But notice David doesn't respond in this way. Because in chapter 7, verses 18 to 24, David opens by praising God. I'm not going to read it, but you can read it. He praises God for who he is and for all that he's done, past and present. And then in, in verse 25 of chapter 7, he turns from praise to petition. And listen to what David says. Chapter 7, verse 25. And now, O Lord God confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. Now, if you read that at some point in the last two weeks, I hope you stopped and thought, whoa. I mean, that's pretty bold, isn't it? I mean, notice what he's doing. David is basically saying, okay, God, I heard you. Now, it's up to you to do it. You go do this keep your promise make it come to pass confirm it and fulfill it in my life that's basically the request he makes again in chapter, in verse in verse 29 right the guy's got some chutzpah right to pray pray this way to god but notice what david is doing as he prays this way notice david is simply praying god's promises back to him that's what he's doing And that's exactly, friends, what Christian prayer is. That's what was so beautiful about Dan's pastoral prayer. He was just praying God's promises and God's word back to him because that's what Christian prayer is. Prayer pleads God's promises. True Christian prayer, it pleads God's promises. So I wonder, my Christian friend, do you pray big, bold, audacious prayers of God's promises back to him. Do you ever pray like this? Or do you feel prayers like that might be impious, a little impertinent, you know, not, you know, not appropriate. Maybe you want to keep your prayers more narrow, maybe a little shallow and small in comparison. It's, it would be not appropriate to ask so much of God at one time. Well, I just want to say, members of UBC, do not in any way be afraid to pray big, bold prayers like this. Audacious prayers. I love what the old Puritan John Trapp said. He said, promises must be prayed over. God loves to be burdened with and to be urgently pressed with requests in his own words. He loves even to be sued on his own bond For prayer is putting God's promises into suit. And it is no arrogancy nor presumption to burden God, as it were, with his own promises. Or in the words of 1 John 5.14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to what? To his will, he hears us. And how do we not know what God's will is? Well, it's not through some mysterious process. It's not through some inner voices we know God's will because what? He's revealed it in his word. And so what do we do? We pray God's word back to him. We plead his promises to him. So my Christian friend, I pray that David's example, even this week, would encourage you to pray big, bold, and yes, even obnoxious prayers to God. That is how we ought to be praying. So that's the promise of the kingdom. And we see God doesn't need us. Rather, we Need him. And we spent proportionally more time there, right? Because chapter seven is so significant in the course of the scriptures. But this does bring us, secondly, to the pattern of the kingdom. Secondly, the pattern of the kingdom. Now, as we turn to chapters eight to 10, I just want you to notice something of the structure of these three chapters. They function like a sandwich, right? Some of you are thinking, I'd love a sandwich right now. I'm hungry. All right, well, sorry, but there's the image. It's a sandwich, okay? And you've got the bread on the outside, right? That's chapter 8, chapter 10. And then you've got the meat right in the middle, chapter 9. And in chapter 8, what are we seeing but various responses to David's reign. We're going to see how some happily submit, whereas others rise up, and they're going to have to be subdued. And then chapter 10 actually continues pretty similarly to chapter 8, More are going to rise up against the Lord's anointed, and they will have to be subdued by his rule. You know, in many ways, Psalm 2 is a kind of commentary on chapters 8 and chapters 10. So have these words of Psalm 2 in mind as we go through chapters 8 and 10. Psalm 2 verse 1, "'Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain?' The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then in Psalm 2, verses 8 and 9. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and will dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And that right there is the pattern we're going to see in chapters 8 and in chapters 10. There's going to be conflict followed by conquest. So look down at me, chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 1. We read, after this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them and took... And David took Methagamah from out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them with the line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated. Hadadezer, and the son of Rohab, king of Nobah, as he went to restore his power at the rim of the Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but he left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. And then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus and And the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Okay, what are we seeing right there? Conflict followed by what? By conquest. Or in the words of Psalm 2, right? Why do the nations rage against the Lord's anointed? And notice how he breaks them with a rod of iron. God right here is already making good on these promises to David. And he's giving David, what, rest from his enemies. And this isn't immediately obvious to us, but the Philistines, verse 1, well, they're on the west. And the Moabites, right, verse 2, they're on the east. And King Hadadazer and company, right, they're up there, verses 3 to 5, to the north. And if you actually skip down to verse 13, there's one more group, the Edomites. And who are they? Well, they're down in the south. So we're seeing how God is expanding David's kingdom, and he's giving him rest on every side. These big, bold, audacious prayers of David are being answered. They're being answered by God. Now, as an aside, you know, why he treats the Moabites as he does, you know, lining them up and not sparing two lines but sparing only one, I I can't quite say. I'm not quite sure. Uh, Nonetheless, while that may seem almost cruel to us, it's not as cruel as the Moabites treated the Israelites. So in this sense, David's being more gracious with them than they ever were with him in Israel. But of course, in between these armies that are rising up only to be struck down, we actually read in verses 9 to 12 of chapter 8, we read of a guy named Toy, king of Hamath. And his response is in fact quite different than these other kings, Instead of needing to be subdued, this king, well, he happily submits. He comes, verse 10, and he's bearing gifts to David. We read of silver that he brings and gold and bronze. And then we read in chapter 8, verse 11, These also, King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. So just not to be partisan, but notice how David is not like Senator Bob Menendez. Right? If you've been reading the news all this week, uh, it turned out the guy was selling his influence, doing some other things. He had nearly half a million dollars and like wadded up cash in his closets, coming out of bureaus, coming out of jackets. The guy even had a bunch of gold bars in his house. I don't know who has gold bars anymore, right? Usually not people you want to do business with. Well, he had plenty of them, and he was enriching himself. And notice that is not what David is doing now, David is dedicating all this spoil to the Lord because he knows this has been the Lord's battle. This is, these are his victories. And we're hearing echoes again Psalm 2. I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. And then notice the summary sentence. Look down, chapter 8, verse 15. What do we read? So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and and equity to all his people so note that justice and equity marked david's reign now don't get hung up on modern notions of that word equity you know equity today refers to equality of outcomes so regardless everyone gets the same perhaps from government for example but that's not what this is getting at here that word equity elsewhere is just translated righteousness He's just saying, the narrator is helping us see that David ruled justly and he ruled rightly. That is the pattern of David's rule, justice and righteousness. And yet we're going to see these patterns of conflict and crisis and, and all the rest continue in chapter 10. So jump with me forward to chapter 10. Chapter 10, look down with me to verse 1. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun their lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father, has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and to spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and shaved off half the beard of each and cut off their garments in the middle at their hips and sent them away. And when it was told David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. All right, so just notice at the start, David is what? He's dealing loyally He's dealing kindly with Hanun, this, this new young king. And ironically, that word Hanun, the, the man's name, is related to the word of uh, the name Hannah. And it speaks actually of grace. It speaks of favor, which is ironic because one of the things we see is that this guy's anything right but gracious. And David sends this diplomatic diplomatic envoy, to, to console the grieving son, to console the people. And, you know, maybe there were some musicians in the group. Maybe there were some grief counselors. Maybe there was some food. You know, who knows exactly? Maybe it had some bit of everything in this group that went. But, of course, Hanun's princes, all of his advisors, think this is just some grand ruse. They say this is really a military intelligence mission. This isn't some kind of diplomatic mission. And, you know what, maybe they believed it was. Or, I think, More likely, they were using this as an opportunity to, as we say, reverse the course of the previous administration. They wanted a resurgent Ammonite nation, and here's their chance to rise up. And so when David's envoy arrives, instead of welcoming them, what do they do? They disgrace them. They shave off half their beards. And then we read they, they cut off their garments in the middle at their hips. Now, that's the ESV's rather discreet way. Of translating the Hebrew if you read the NIV or the NET they render it they cut off their garments to expose their buttocks and honestly that gives you a clear sense of the Hebrew right they were meaning to sexually humiliate and shame this envoy they were meant to inflict the maximum amount and in uh, the scriptures in the ancient Near East in particular women were the only one with smooth faces So when they kick this group out, half their faces are smooth, and they've got hands on their backsides trying to cover their own nakedness. In effect, what Hanun and his advisors are saying is, David, all of your men, they're just women. There's not a single man that can take us. We are rising up. We are declaring war. That's exactly what that action is meant to denote. It's a declaration of war. And it's a war, if you keep reading, that they are going to lose, right? They have cut off the garments, they have cut up this treaty, and they themselves, sadly, will be cut down. They have a Syrian mercenary force, and they get them to fight beside them. And if you read through chapter 10, they actually do something pretty wise. They engage in a kind of pincer movement, and you got the Syrians and these other hired hands on on the backside of the army and the Ammonites come out to the front and so they're fighting two fronts and yet, despite even that, Israel succeeds and all those nations are subdued. Such that by the end of chapter 10, what do we read? We read that they made peace with Israel and became subject to them so the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. And we think again of Psalm 2, don't we? Why do the nations rage? and the people's plot in vain. Okay, so what are we seeing here? We're seeing the pattern. And what's the pattern? Yes, conflict, and then conquest. But notice the pattern of the response. Right? Some remain rebellious to this king of the lords, whereas others become repentant. Right? Some must be crushed, whereas others are contrite. Some must be subdued, whereas others actually happily submit. And what's the inescapable lesson here in these chapters for us? It's that God's anointed, he will rule over us. God's anointed will rule over us. So Christian, note just here, both Old Testament and New Testament, that the nations do not relish God's anointed's reign. What do they do? They resist it, they buck up against it, they fight against it. That is the consistent pattern of the kingdom, the pattern in the Old Testament and the pattern in the New. How did, after all, the nations treat Christ and his apostles? And yet, make no mistake, right, he would establish his rule not by popular demand, but by armed might. One way or another, we're seeing how every knee is going to bow before the Lord's anointed. They will either voluntarily submit or they will be involuntarily, if you will, subdued. And I just wonder, you're a Christian here. How does this correspond to your notion, I wonder, of Jesus? How does this correspond to your notion of Jesus? Do you at all feel uncomfortable with a Jesus like this? One who rules and reigns and one day brings everything and everyone in submission under his feet. You know, sometimes we think of Jesus kind of helplessly sitting at the door of our hearts, and he's hoping and waiting anxiously that when he knocks, we might open up that door and give him a little room in our hearts. But the Jesus of the Bible storms in, right? He takes what is rightfully his. And I wonder if you've come and you're perhaps not a Christian this morning. Maybe you've come from another religious tradition, or maybe you're just agnostic or unsure, I wonder how this vision of Jesus strikes you. Have you heard of this Jesus? Because, you know, in a democracy, we can vote our leaders, elected leaders, out of office. You know, if they're wildly unpopular, what can we do? We can call for a referendum. If they do something illegal, we can move toward impeachment. But we don't live under a kind of spiritual democracy where the will of the people prevails. In God's kingdom, His will prevails because only his will is righteous and just and true. You know, I read recently that the most popular song played at funerals is Frank Sinatra's I Did It My Way, which is basically to thumb our nose at God, right? I did it my way. Well, think about how well is that working out for any of these here in chapters 8 and chapter 10? And do you expect it will work out any better for you? You see, all of us are actually naturally like Hanun in chapter 10. Though God has dealt faithfully with us, he's dealt loyally with us, we have rejected his rule, we've tried to throw it off, cast it off. And when he sends, as David did, his emissaries of love to us, how do we respond to them? We reject them, we, we shame and humiliate them as well. And so what does God do? He finally sends his son And how did we treat the Son? Well, with that same shame and contempt, we go one step further and we nail that Son to a cross. And you may say, you know what, but I wasn't there. To which I say to you, it actually doesn't matter. Because if you were, you would do the same thing because that's what we and our fallen nature all would do. Which is why we need to heed Paul's warning in Romans 2, 4-5. Why do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Just as there's no neutrality for David, there's no neutrality toward Jesus. You're either a friend who submits to his rule or you're an enemy who is subdued by it. Jesus is the king. That's what we're seeing. Not Jesus could be the king, not one day Jesus may be the king, or if we will him to be, Jesus might be king. No, he is, regardless of what we want or think, he is king, and he rules. Like it or not, he will rule over us. The question is, what kind of rule will that be for us? And if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe you're younger, you're youth in the room, and you're trying to make sense of your parents' faith, or maybe just long ago you rejected the faith, the beautiful truth is that God actually delights to make friends out of former enemies. You know, it's not too late, because on the cross, Jesus, the innocent one, willingly died for the guilty, so that those who are guilty by trusting in him, they might be set free. And he calls you, therefore, to come to him. As we sang earlier, Jesus, I come. That is what we're called to do, to come, to put down our swords, to stop the rebellion, to repent of our sins, to turn to him, and to trust in him, to be loved and graciously ruled and accepted by him. Because this Jesus is slow to anger and abounding in love. And yet, as we see as you get to Revelation, when his wrath is roused, there is no place to hide. That's the pattern of the kingdom. Conflict and conquest. Either submit or be subdued. But make no mistake, one way or another, Christ will rule over us. Which leads us finally to the people of the kingdom. Finally, the people of the kingdom, you all have been patient, I know, four chapters, but here we go, thirdly, the people of the kingdom, and that brings us to the meat of the sandwich, chapter 9, and chapter 9 is a beautiful illustration of God's kingdom and the kind of people he welcomes into his kingdom, for in the midst of all these wars that are transpiring, there's a moment where David ponders and wonders, is there anyone left in the house of Saul And so David hears about a former servant of Saul. And he summons this servant, servant, rather, chapter 9. Look at chapter 9, verse 2. Chapter 9, verse 2. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Makir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then king David sent and brought him from the house of Makir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? friends, here we come to one of the most moving chapters, right? We've just had the heights there in chapter 7, the most moving chapters in all of 1 and 2 Samuel. For it turns out, there's one member of Saul's house who's still alive. There's actually a child of Jonathan that's still alive. Now, if you remember back in chapter 4, the narrator already told us that this child existed. We know that, but David did not know that. He's now just coming to learn it. And we learn this the son of Jonathan's name is Mephibosheth. Just try saying that five times as fast as you can. But that name is related to the word for shame. And then we learned this child, who's now an adult, is also crippled. He's lame in both feet, a fact that's repeated again in chapter 9, verse 13. And, of course, what's Mephibosheth doing? Well, he's in hiding. He's in the Transjordan, meaning he's across the Jordan River. He's east of the Jordan in a place called Lodabar, a place so insignificant and so devoid of anything of value, its name literally means nothing. That's what the name means. So here is a man of shame in a place of shame. And why is he hiding? Well, what do ancient kings do? As soon as kings are able to secure their throne, they execute every potential rival to the throne. That's how kingship worked for hundreds, thousands of years. You can even think... The Stalinists, right? The Bolsheviks and the Romanovs and in the, the uprising there, the Russian Revolution, right? You can't afford to leave any loose ends. You got to tie up all of the previous administration. So Mephibosheth is trying to keep his head low across the Jordan because he wants to keep his head on. He is, after all, notice the narrator says, part of Saul's house. Part of Saul's house. What does that mean? That means he's David's enemy. And he is the only one with a rightful claim to the throne. And what does David do once he learns this information? He does the exact opposite of what everyone would have expected him to do. No, instead of executing Mephibosheth, what does he do? He embraces him, verse 6. And right there in verse 6, Mephibosheth falls on his face, no doubt trembling in fear. He's waiting the executioner's acts. The guy thinks he's a donner. He refers to himself as a dead dog. And what does David do? David cries out. He says, Mephibosheth. Like he bear hugs him. And I know the text doesn't say that, but that's the sense you get. He's so thrilled to see him. And then he'll go on to what? He restores all of Saul's lands, which now makes Mephibosheth incredibly wealthy. And David then commands Ziba and all of his servants to provide for everything that Mephibosheth needs. And then David invites him to dine at his table always. Four times we're told in chapter 9 that Mephibosheth would dine at David's table always. So instead of being off with his head, he's dining at the head of the table with the king. And so we read in the second half of verse 11, So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like what? Like one, verse 11, like one of the king's sons. Did you catch that? David made him a son. Do you see the sweet lesson in that for us? Though God doesn't need us, and he will absolutely rule over us, he also delights to be gracious to us. That's the third lesson right there. He delights to be gracious to us. As we can see here, Grace doesn't just mean better than I deserve. Grace means, in fact, the very opposite of what I deserve, which is exactly what Mephibosheth gets. He gets true biblical grace. Notice what? He gets protection. David says, don't be afraid. Right? You're under my care. He gets provision, lands, and fabulous wealth. And he gets position as well. He's now got the right to dine at the table of the king and live like a son, And recognize this isn't just David having a soft spot for those with physical disabilities. This is David treating a natural enemy better than a friend like a son. And is that not how God has loved us in Christ? Did Christ not cry out to the hurting and to the lost, telling them not to be afraid? How often does Christ cry out to his people, do not be afraid, do not fear, and then he comes and gives them, so to speak, a bear hug and reassures them. Did not Christ lavish his disciples with wonderful gifts, the greatest gift being what? The gift of his spirit, his own presence that now dwells among them. And did not Christ grant them position, the right to dine at his table, and to be what? Adopted as sons. Those who are spiritually crippled, crippled by shame, crippled by guilt, crippled by sin, to those like Hanun who are natural enemies of God, Christ cries out and he says, Come, stop fighting and become a friend. For it is, after all, in Luke 14, It is Christ who welcomes whom? The spiritually poor, we read, Luke 14. The crippled, the blind, and the lame. And what does he do there? He welcomes them to what? To dine at his table. Just as Mephibosheth was invited by David. Like Mephibosheth, in our spiritually crippled condition, we have nothing to offer Jesus, no service we can bring. But in Christ, God delights to make us sons and daughters of the king. So how will you respond to God's king? Again, we love our democracy. We love the right to pick and choose our leaders as we wish. We like to depose those we don't like. But what's offered to us in the political realm is not offered to us in the spiritual realm. Like it or not, Christ is king. And he alone is king. And he is eternally king. And though he doesn't need us, he will rule over us. And he delights to be gracious to us the only question is is he your king have you submitted to his reign or will you find yourself one day subdued by it let's pray